This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So something, Tim, that we've definitely been talking about in the newsroom, I don't know what you folks over at Quick Take, whether it's been on your mind this morning, uh, but about Texas Governor Greg Abbott lifting the mask mandate in Texas. I think actually you and I maybe touched on it yesterday. Yeah, we did uh, toward the late in the day yesterday, but it was the lead of our 9 a.m. show this morning because, uh, look, this comes at a time where people definitely do not feel like we're on the other side of the pandemic and healthcare professionals are saying, hey, it's a little early to be opening up at 100 percent. Yeah, and they're getting ready to allow businesses to operate at full capacity. I think it all begins next week, even though some of their city and county officials say, wait a minute, this is too fast, basically. Let's get into it because we did get an update on the vaccine and the virus yesterday from President Biden talking about all Americans will have enough uh, COVID vaccines uh, by May, but working on getting the places and the vaccinators in place to give them out. Let's get to our guest, Alyssa Rapp. She's CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions. She's with us once again on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Alyssa, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg. How are you? I'm well, Carol. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me back. And I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic about the state of vaccine than hmm. I even was a few days ago. How come? I think that now that J&J has had the shot approved and there's just going to be more vaccine in the market, you know, if, if we're on a current average of 1.9 million shots given per day, at that pace, 70% of American adults could be vaccinated by August, and maybe we can accelerate that further. And that becomes that interesting, almost tipping point for from a herd immunity standpoint with adults. Now, the children are a different issue. I understand J&J's vaccine plus, um, has less efficacy than the other two, but at the same time, that's a much greater clip of vaccinations, which is, I think, possibly a light at the end of the tunnel. Alyssa, that's, I mean, that's great, great to hear that the optimism has changed in just recent days. You have over 200 employees on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. They're working to provide services and equipment for hospitals. What are you hearing from them? What's it like for them on the front lines right now? So in the early days, it was really, well, throughout COVID, it's been extraordinary and, and clinician burnout and their burnout is very real. So that's a whole different conversation. But as it relates to the vaccine, in the last few months, as their sites of service in the 35 hospitals where Surgical Solutions operates, as they've all been receiving the vaccine, there were still hiccups. And we talked a little bit about that when I was last on, how there were hiccups in delivery, even at hospitals of all essential workers, which I found very frustrating due to regulatory requirements and, and tracking um, through technology. But now I think some of that has been solved for. And now we're seeing and the education of our staff through uh, lots of mechanisms is high, so we are seeing a, a much greater clip of people getting the first shot and then the second. They've all been receiving Moderna and Pfizer to date. Uh, and I'm hopeful that when it when there's a one-shot option, we'll see it increase even further. But at least the friction in terms of getting the vaccine as an essential worker seems to have been dramatically reduced, and now access to vaccines themselves 
sight of hospitals being out of vaccine seems to be, replenishment seems to be going a little bit better. That's good. That's great to hear because you guys are seeing it directly. What about the one of the things that uh, President Biden brought up is getting kind of the super sites out there so that people can actually get the vaccine and having the vaccinators in place. And I'm curious if that's where, you know, some of your uh, employees and team members, you know, really are seeing this firsthand. Are they being asked to work longer, work more places to get those vaccines out? We haven't been a part of the actual vaccination team yet, although we're working longer hours and, and, and doing all sorts of things to support minimally invasive surgeries, which is tangentially related. But mm. I, I firmly believe that working with our existing big box retailers, and it, it almost doesn't matter which one we talk about, whether it's a Walgreens or a CVS or a Walmart or a Costco that has infrastructure for shot delivery, as you know, Walgreens already have the flu shot, as, as does Costco, et cetera. That, to me, is the, the cleanest and simplest way to ensure that it's going to be mass rollout from a retail consumer-facing perspective. I'm wondering how you're thinking about this year as the CEO uh, of Surgical Solutions. What are you planning for in terms of how your employees will change their behavior once we are on the other side of this pandemic, how they're going to, I mean, I got to tell you, uh, we are like planning for mass vacations at this point. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering as, as a leader, like how do you plan for that? Because people have some pent up demand to take a break, right? It's like you all can't take August off, sorry. <laughs> right, no, no, that certainly wouldn't work. Actually scheduling a vacation time has become a very real priority and team leaders, which we call our account supervisors or junior account managers, have to be very have to be very dedicated and clear in how they're going to allow for staggered vacation time because people need it. We want them to have it. They've earned it. They should take it, but you can't take it all at once to your point. And so making sure we're intentional so there isn't a drop in coverage and being choiceful on how we plan for that's going to be important. And then also being being clear that in past years people had chosen not to take vacation. It's like, no, no, not only have you earned it, you should take it. We all need a break. It's exhausting. This has been exhausting on numerous levels. And taking the time off is really key. A couple of our, uh, one of our director of implementation, um, we had him rotate for a few days off recently, and he came back saying he was super rejuvenated and refreshed, which was music to my ears. That's what time off is supposed to do. So it's needed, and we just need to be planning for it carefully. Yeah, especially especially in this time when kind of the lines are blurred between work and home and, and all of that. Um, Alyssa, always great to uh, talk with you. Alyssa Rapp, CEO over at Surgical Solutions, joining us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. What's the message? Take a vacation. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. A lot of great stories uh, being reported for Bloomberg Business Week. One about sick time uh, during working from home. We're going to get to that a little bit later on. Then there's a story that stayed at the top of the most read on the Bloomberg for most of yesterday about that four-day work week. You and I talked about that. Yeah, sounds pretty nice, I think, to a lot of people. Tim's like, sign me up. Yeah, not to everyone. <laughs> well, Stevan Nicola is the person who wrote that story, German business reporter on for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Berlin. Stefan, it's great to talk to you about this. I loved it when you joined us on Quick Take yesterday. Um, tell us about the company Awen. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Awen is a Berlin-based tech company that um, when it went into lockdown last year, it realized that its employees suffered from stress and it gave employees half a Friday off uh, to sort of ease into the weekend. And that experiment went so well, sales, employee engagement and client satisfaction all rose that in January, Avon decided to go a step further and they rolled out a four day week 
for the entire company with no cuts in salaries or benefits. And the CEO says it's working really well. Joel Weber, I'm thinking, all right, sign me up. Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel <laughs> Weber is here on the Access Line in Brooklyn. I feel like as we're all thinking about Joel getting back to work post-pandemic, we're trying to figure out, is it a hybrid? Are we working from home? Are we going to the office? What is it? Uh, yeah, you know, more importantly, like if you're going to do a four-day work week, which which day do you excise <laughs> from that work week? You know, is, exactly. it, is it Friday seems, is the obvious choice, but like Monday, there's a totally strong case for that. It'd yeah. be Wednesday, nice to get rid of Mondays. Yeah, really. Wednesday was like the out-of-the-box uh, one that, that a colleague said, like, why, why bother with Wednesday? So I, f- I thought it was fitting that on a Wednesday we would talk about <laughs> which ones to get rid of. But, but Stephen, I, the, uh, the thing that I thought was most interesting about this is like, even if you lop off a day, whichever day of the week it happens to be, it doesn't seem to affect productivity. What, what did we learn about that? Yeah, so uh, there are studies out there that productivity isn't dropping. Uh, in some cases, um, we, we are seeing increased productivity even. And uh, the CEO of the company told me he saw the same. Uh, uh, he said that employees find ways to work smarter and not less, but smarter, and they're just as productive. And, and just uh, um, going back to the Monday, Wednesday, Friday discussion, he, he, he said that Fridays are the most popular days to take off, followed by Monday, and then actually Wednesday, as he suggested, because it gives people a nice break in the middle of the week and they can restart, recharge. I'm just gonna say Fridays I like because that's when we sometimes have a wine guest and we can drink wine on air. <laughs> so I mean, I'm not getting rid really of Fridays. Nice to get rid of Mondays. <laughs> yeah, let's get rid of Mondays. You know, nobody says you have a case of the Fridays. <laughs> so Stefan, you know what I'm wondering though? Are we still productive these four days? Like when we when they cut it down, what did they find? Yeah, they did find that that productivity is, is basically the same or even improved. And uh, it's that, you know, workers tend to be more focused during the four days and they tend to put a lot of effort into those uh, four days uh, that they are either in the office or or working from home. Um, Interestingly enough, um, the CEO of that company also uh, um, expected, you know, productivity to, you know, uh, suffer when he sent all of his employees at home. And he, he said clearly that didn't happen, much the contrary. Workers work just as as well from home, and uh, uh, lopping off uh, another day uh, was the natural uh, choice for him. And he said it, it really restored a work-life balance that has uh, you know left him uh, energized for the rest of the week. Hey, Stefan, I want to uh, move to another story that you wrote, uh, this one coming out today, talking about Tesla, speaking of the corporate world. you got to get to those four days of work somehow, and it turns out the <laughs> European corporate car market is huge. This was really surprising for me to see. Um, a lot of com- companies, are, uh, companies account for a large proportion of cars sold uh, in Europe, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, um, around 60% of new cars sold in Europe are bought by corporate customers. So that is a huge market. And uh, uh, it's worth about $360 billion. And it's a market the local automakers dominate. Uh, um, and of course, Tesla uh, has a hard time cracking that market, partly because it's lacking servicing stations. Uh, one company told me that uh, you know, its its workers would love to to get Teslas, 
but the company is is not comfortable offering those cars as a perk uh, because um, they are afraid that these uh, employees would take uh, time off from work to to deal with repairs and uh, the likes of Mercedes, BMW, and Volkswagen they offer same day fixes nearby for these uh, company cars that that these workers get as a perk, and and that's why uh, they're they're still uh, the favorite models for, for many companies. But if you're only working four days, you know that <laughs> extra day seems like a day that you could like charge your deal car. With your car. Uh, I'm just bringing it all together here with a bow. Nice, uh, nice. Uh, but but how big of a deal is this really for Tesla? And like they are, you know, clearly they have demand if this many people want them. So so is this corporate um, uh, conundrum going to end up being a headache for them? And Stefan just got about thirty seconds. Yeah, look, for now, of course, um, you know, the company is building a new plant in Berlin. It's going to be huge, uh, outputting as much as 500,000 cars. So they need to sell those cars somewhere, and the corporate car market is just too big to ignore for them. Joel, I think there's a third story that Stefan can do that ties it all together. I'm sure I can find one. (laughs) The week week is not done yet. (laughs) Good stuff, guys. Thank you so much. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, remote access from Brooklyn. Stefan Nicola, German business reporter, joining us from Berlin, staying up for us. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week and really looking forward to uh, our next guest because I feel like a top story at this hour. It's got to be, it continues to be, and that is the economy. We're counting down a Friday's monthly jobs report, watching the prospects for another round of stimulus from D.C. So I got to say, great to have back with us Peter Atwater. Yeah, Peter Atwater is an adjunct professor of economics at William & Mary, joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania. Professor Atwater, great to have you on the show. Um, How are you doing? I'm doing well, Tim. Thank you. Good. Um, you, what do you think of the? Uh, we've been we've been dying to have you on, and we're lucky to get so much time with you. How is the American economy doing right now? Because we are getting so many mixed signals, right? There's this mm-hmm. optimism flashing in the bond market right now. Uh, the stock market is just off of of record highs in recent weeks. At the same time, though, uh, 10 million Americans out of work. So it continues to be the K-shaped recovery. Um, For those that were able to migrate to work from home, they are now counting down the hours to the reopening of the economy and getting back to life as normal. But as you said, there are 10 million Americans unemployed, 4.5 million filing continuing claims for whom the recovery is going to be very slow even once it's reopened. What's kind of wacky is, and we just did a a conversation with one of our reporters, it's among our most read stories on the Bloomberg, and it has to do with, um, Peter, what's going on in states and state revenues. I think we all thought, oh my God, the states are going to fall apart, municipalities are going to fall apart. Revenues actually aren't down that much. And this is kind of going against the expected 200 billion in state aid that's that's expected to come from uh, the COVID relief package from President Biden. What do you say to that? So I say that we're seeing similar unevenness that we are seeing with individuals, that we're seeing with businesses, we're seeing it with states. And so the challenge now for the administration is how do you provide support for the states that are not doing well in the face of the economy about to reopen? And, you know, without it being viewed as a bailout, on the one hand, 
and also without it being viewed as incremental stimulus that runs the risk of the economy running hot. And I, I think it's going to be very difficult for the administration to get the current package that it's proposed on the states through, because it, it, as, it, as things stand right now, it gives everybody a reason not to like it. It's too much stimulus. It's too much relief. It's a bailout. Something is going to have to give there. Well, are you worried about inflation? I'm not. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like the, the lone voice here. You know, last week. Sorry. <laughs> we, we, last week we saw this intense capitulation, this intense climax yeah. on the, re, the reflation trade and bond yields. You know, Carol, I, I spent a lot of time looking at Google Trends, and mm-hmm. I do because it shows when the retail investor shows up. And suddenly last week, all they wanted to do was to search for reflation and bond yields. And that feels, you know, we may go a little higher, but that feels to me very sort of GameStop-ish, where there was this intense fury that then fizzled out. And I, I honestly think folks have gotten way ahead of themselves on the reopening. So do you think the move up, like we were talking about the tenure at 1.5, we've gone as far as 1.6. I kind of see it as a little bit of a catch-up from the equity bounce back of, okay, where we can see a trajectory of things getting better. It's going to take a while. How did you see the move up, though, in yields? So I I saw it in some ways very much mirroring what we've seen in commodities. Okay. And, And so we've also seen everybody now worried about shortages and, you know, the supply chain being a problem. The White House had a group of folks in last week worrying about chip supply. And so that, to me, is all indicative of the same kind of sentiment that there's that there are shortages, that inflation is built into the system, and that problems are coming ahead. But it all presupposes that when the economy, quote unquote, reopens, people now fantasize that they're going to get back to what was, and we never do. I, I love this. I tweeted about this. Wait, I just got to jump in because you say this whole idea of getting back to normal, right? It, the return to normal. I, I probably would be a really rich woman if I had a nickel for every time I said it or a guest said it. But you're saying that we don't, that's not what happens. No, we, we carry our experiences, particularly traumatic experiences with us. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, you know, those that did not experience trauma, they've been spending wildly on homes and other things um, already. So I, I struggle, other than with travel and some entertainment, where those at the very top are now suddenly going to splurge. But I worry as we move down the, the economic chain, there, there are people who've been traumatized by this financially, right. and for whom I think we're going to see continued hoarding, continued reluctance to spend. Um, you know, I, I think about it in terms of what I call the pantry effect, where when you, when you didn't have enough toilet paper, when you didn't have enough, you know, whatever it was that you were rushing to Costco to fill last spring, well, it's still in your house, well, even though supplies have come back. Right. For, Peter, is there, is there any silver lining to that? I, I know it doesn't have the stimulus effects that economists want to see, that the Biden administration wants to see, but is there any silver lining to hoarding cash and, and paying down debt for some of these people who you say were financially traumatized and only have about 30 seconds left? 
Yeah, I, I do think that there is, you know, getting stable, you know, getting some certainty and control back to their, their lives is important. And I think that's part of the, the stimulus effort. But I think to, to assume that they're going to now wildly spend is, is, is woefully optimistic. Listen, I've said it a million times. We love hearing from you. You first coined the term to describe the economic world that we have been in, this K-shaped recovery. And I have to say, in the break, and Tim, maybe you come in on here, because we've been talking about the K-shaped recovery as it relates to the COVID relief package. Yeah, and it's a conversation happening in Washington right now. Just today, President Joe Biden agreeing to moderate Democrats' demands to narrow that eligibility for those stimulus checks. So now, individuals earning over $80,000 would not qualify for those direct payments, compared with a hundred thousand dollar cap that was in the previously drafted legislation. The ceiling for couples will now be one hundred and sixty thousand um, as compared to two hundred thousand before. Professor Atwater, is, is that the right move? Is that the right way to address the K-shaped recovery here? Yeah, I think it is. I think that there has been, you know, policymakers use fairly blunt tools. And I think initially there was a sense that everyone needed to be helped. There is much greater clarity today, I think, where the pain really is, as well as where those who have benefit really have, have, have fared. So I think that there is a need for greater precision and, and focus on those whose, whose lives have been upended versus those who are already on the trajectory to, to recovery. So I want to ask you, I kind of love your mix of you worked in financial services, you're in academia, like you've seen a lot, you understand the intersection of a lot, Peter. And I do wonder if we are at this juncture where we can really make some big changes in our economy, in our world, and the inequities that are out there that are longer lasting. Like I've got cousin TJ who's tweeting at me and I said, do you have a question for Professor Atwater? And he says, yeah, the economics of infrastructure and spectrum upgrades, the economic costs of not doing them. Like there are things we need to be thinking about. How do you think about it in terms of, let's do that long-term plan for America? So I think given the current mood, it's going to be difficult for us to tackle abstract ideas like climate change. Mm. Now, having said that, I think there is enormous energy around addressing the problems that come from climate change, that come from the insufficient investment that we've made. And so I, I think that no matter the administration, we will see an emphasis on repair, replace, remediate, things that we see as real tangible problems that we have to fix. What are some of those tangible problems? Well, certainly the effects of climate change are, are, are places where, you know, whether it's flooding, you know, you look at, you know, we still haven't done anything in New York around Sandy, but, you know, mm. which is the, shocking, the, right? <laughs> yeah. The, and, and you're seeing, you know, the infrastructure issues in Texas on, on the energy grid. I, I think that basic systemic infrastructure, I, I think we, we tend to think of infrastructure as solely transportation, but, but we have a number of, of critical systems and networks that need to be upgraded if America is going to be competitive against global, you know, the global competition that's out there. Are, are you optimistic that there is the political will for that long-term view? I mean, look, we talk a lot about executives at companies thinking on a quarter-by-quarter -quarter basis, but I think one criticism of people in Washington, elected officials, is that, is that they think about the next election as soon as they win that current election. So 
I agree with you that we are very short-term focused. You know, with, with low confidence comes me here now thinking. But I also think part of that is a need for domestic investment versus investment abroad. Mm. And so I think that this this mantra of, you know, whether it's build America, you know, build back better, the, the, you know, make America great again, I think that both parties have tapped into a desire to reestablish America and focus on America first. That's what voters across the aisle are demanding. Can we do that in a world where increasingly the borders have come down? Or, I mean, I know they've come back up again big time, but we constantly have, I've spent, I don't know, the last five, 10 years talking increasingly about globalization. Can we do it and it'll all work? Well, we're going to do it, I think, whether it works or not, because there is a need for this, what I call the just-in-case economy. So that mindset that we have, that we need and expect critical supplies, critical manufacturing, things that are vital to the American economy happening in America. Mm -hmm. And I think we were awakened in terms of the pandemic and what we didn't make here and probably need to. And so I think there's a, there's a, again, a bipartisan view that we need to focus here at home first. No, really, really thoughtful ideas and something to think about. Um, and I think that's interesting how you said, Peter, about how both sides of the aisle are thinking about this kind of make America great again. Yeah, we don't think of a common ground that often when it comes to no. Democrats and Republicans, but it's true. Yeah, great stuff. Peter, be well. Thank you, thank you. Peter Atwater, adjunct professor of economics at William & Mary, on the phone from uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, you read his bio and it talks about at 45, his son said, you're halfway to 90, like, what are you doing? <laughs> I love <laughs> so it. so glad he's uh, had some time for us. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session, bouncing around a little bit, bouncing around the bottom right now. I've got about a 2.2% decline on the NASDAQ, so tech stocks really taking the biggest hit here. Um, Let's get into it with uh, Sarah Malik. She's head of global equities, chief investment officer of global equities over at Nuveen, on the phone from San Francisco, overseeing roughly $420 billion in uh, assets under management. Sarah, nice to have you here with Tim and myself the tech route. Do we need to be concerned here? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. You know, there's three issues weighing on the market, and a lot of those are hurting these long-duration sectors like technology. The first issue is inflation. We do view that as more of a fear than reality, but it's causing a mini tantrum for the market. Uh, the Fed should stay on its dovish course, so I think that we're okay on inflation. However, the second is the backup in rates. Uh, These higher yields that we're seeing are being driven by growth, so we don't view it as an imminent risk, even though the 10-year interest rates are moving up. You know, as long as growth expectations and vaccines continue to roll out, we think we'll be okay. 
Third is valuations. Uh, valuations on the S&P are over 20 times at this point, and we need that earnings growth to kick in for val- to drive the markets higher because we don't expect any more valuation expansion. And the beneficiaries of that faster earnings growth are going to be those shorter duration cyclicals. And the, and the source of funds for those cyclicals will most likely be technology stocks. And that's why you're seeing these tech stocks continue to compress in this kind of faster economic growth environment. Okay, I want to start with number two, bond yields. Is there a number that we should be concerned about? Is there a point when you start to get concerned about rising bond yields? You know, we look at, for example, high yield spreads, which actually remain quite low. So that's not uh, causing any issues. We look at the uh, how steep is the yield curve. Uh, it remains steep, so it's telling you that growth is driving these yields higher, and it's not fear of a recession. Uh, we're also watching commodities, such as copper. Uh, copper prices continue to move up. That's, improve, that's pointing to improved economic performance. So as long as the drivers behind these yields are strong, we're not as worried about them. But you do need to watch these spreads. You do need, do need to watch the slope of the yield curve. And if you start to see those start to move in the wrong direction, then we would become more concerned about higher yields. Right. And, and the other thing is, I mean, there were some stories on the on the Bloomberg, some great reporting about inflation ex- expectations, short term versus longer term. If you look longer out on the curve in terms of what uh, investors are expecting, they're not worried about inflation. Is it important to us to keep that in perspective? I think that's also another key to this is we do expect to see higher inflation because of the reopening of the economy, mm-hmm. people going back demand for traveling. There's also some supply issues with logistics that as we're having trouble getting supply back online, it's causing spikes in prices. The longer term, there's headwinds for inflation. Uh, In the labor markets, uh, about labor is two-thirds of company revenues. There's still a lot of slack in the labor markets. Uh, Higher productivity, uh, demographics going in in the wrong direction, all of that puts a lid on inflation. So exactly, I agree with you. Our view is that Inflation could see a short-term spike. We don't expect the Fed to overreact on a short-term spike in inflation. And longer term, those expectations actually remain quite mild, which is positive for equities. So, Sarah, given this backdrop, where are you seeing opportunity in the market right now? Uh, we think cyclicals are attractive. So looking for those companies that have the most bang for, their, for your buck in terms of leverage to the economy. So this is financials. Uh, the consumer, as the, as the economies reopen, the consumer has a very strong balance sheet and the consumer should be strong. Going outside of the U.S., non-U.S. benchmarks tend to have a heavier cyclical weight than U.S. benchmarks, which tend to be more technology weighted. So looking at European benchmarks and also emerging markets, which should benefit from a reflation trade and also from stronger currencies versus a weaker dollar. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask you, Sarah, is I think um, last time around, and I think it didn't work out either because of news or or some other thing that the the markets, the part of the market that you were looking at was, um, and I think this was in late February, you were looking at some of the digital names, whether it was a ServiceNow or a HubSpot. I'm just curious, do you still like that area of the market, which has definitely come down significantly from its highs? Yes, yeah, so we had found opportunity in some of these digital names in January when you saw a lot of the individual investors buying companies that were heavily shorted and some long, some hedge funds that had to pretty quickly de-risk and sell some of these crowded technology names. And we still do like the structural growth of strong technology companies. The question is, what price do you want to pay for them? When you do see them dropping you know, 15 30% in a week, which for some of these companies that happened in January, we view that as a buying opportunity. And we think another one will be coming up in some of these strong companies like ServiceNow, 
HubSpot, um, uh, Salesforce, all of these companies are companies that you do want to own over time, and you need to pick your points at where you want to buy them because that, their strong structural growth is still there. However, the companies that are really going to benefit from a faster growing economy in the nearer term are going to be those cyclical. Right, because ServiceNow is down about 13% from that February 11th high. Hey, what are, what are you guys hearing from clients when it comes to portfolio construction right now? I mean, are you really overweight equities in general? And I know this is a question that depends on, on who the client is, but are you overweight equities because the because fixed income isn't doing anything? You know, I, it, it depends on the needs of the client. You know, clients are, some clients are more focused on income, some are more pro- focused on capital appreciation. We're looking really at it, you know, with a risk reward of different asset classes. So equities, you can get higher returns that also they come with a you know, higher level of risk than other asset classes. So really, it's, for us, it's based on what is the client looking for. Um, and then we have a very diversified platform that can offer them anything they need to help them meet their goals. Sarah, one last question. So a year from now, you're writing a book about 2021. What do you think the title's gonna be? Well, I think it, it'll be the return to normal. So getting back to the normal way of life, I, I think we could see uh, people actually, almost everything happening greater than we expected. So there, I think that we could, if anything, err on the side of more growth than we expect because of the stimulus. Uh, you know, we could overshoot in some ways. Uh, mm. because, you know, if you look at history, post these types of periods, people actually, it's almost like they come roaring back. And we may see that in the second half of this year. Earnings could be very back and loaded. That could drive the market. That's probably more of the risk than right. shutting down again. Well, and going back to Peter Atwater saying you really can't go back to normal because there's just things that have happened, whether it's increased digitization. So it's this interesting conversation we're having around that. Sarah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Sarah Malek, Chief Investment Officer of Global Equities over at Nuveen with us from San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.